right, and here we are. This is uh, Sean Martin coming to you from RSA Conference 2023 in Moscone West Broadcast Alley. And uh, we're doing a special episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here. And I'm thrilled to have some amazing guests join us. Uh, we have Leah McLean. Hello. Yes. Diana Kelly. Hi. And Davi Ottenheimer. Hello. And uh, so today, we are all going to pull out our phones and we're going to use ChatGPT to have this conversation with you. I'm kidding, of course. We're not going to. We're going we're to remain human and have this conversation. Um, we are going to talk about AI, though, and its role within a security program, and more specifically, how it might impact the analyst role. And uh, the topic is how do we augment the security analyst? So that's it. But before we do, quick word from uh, from our guests here. Uh, who you are, what you've been up to, your role, if you care to share that, um, and why this topic. I mean, you, you, you agreed to join me. I'm <laughs> thankful for that, so so why? Okay. No, thank you. Uh, Leah McLean, Vice President of Cybersecurity Specialist at MasterCard, focusing on uh, mainly cyber risk, um, internal cyber risk, and a little bit of third-party risk management. But it's, I mean, with ChatGPT launching not that long ago, it's just been interesting to see um, capabilities, but the hesitation and what more we still need to do to make sure it's secure. So that's, it's interesting, different directions we can go. Absolutely. Diana. Hi. Everybody mm -hmm. who follows us knows you, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> You've been on so much with us. Diana yeah. Kelly, I'm the CSO at CyberEyes currently. I have over 30 years in IT, almost all of it in security, because someone got on one of my networks and I had to stop it, but I've had a variety of roles, implementation, and uh, you know, I've been a research analyst and worked at large companies like Microsoft and IBM. And I agreed to be on mostly because Sean asked. Like, I mean, that's pretty <laughs> much it. Sean says, would I be on? So yes. Um, also, one area of research I've been really focused on because of the potential negative impacts is how we're adopting and the ethical use of AI and ML. Perfect. Debbie. Okay. Uh, what can I say? Also, 30 <laughs> some years uh, working in a lot of different positions. I think I started in disinformation without realizing it because I worked on social sciences of the ethics of, of intervention in order to in, get into a place that people had been taken over by someone else and the third party would be pushed out by you. So that had transformational effects on my career later. The first third of my career I think was availability, just getting systems up. That was everybody wanted high availability. Then it was confidentiality. Everybody wanted privacy and encryption. And then probably 12 or so years ago, everybody wanted integrity. I saw it early. And so working on the third part of the triad. Um, and since then it's been a real struggle and ChatGPT for me is icing on the disaster cake. It's <laughs> the worst I've seen so far and the overzealous public adoption of it just scares me more than anything. I mean, I've been working on it for a long enough time that I think it's time to go back to the 1900s. Uh, I mean, we really see the changes in the 1900s from industrialization recurring, and people need to know those were mistakes. We made a lot of mistakes. That's, although I, I agreed to join just because I like talking a lot. No, I'm thankful you did, all three of you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, we, it'd be easy for us as security professionals to, to take the dark road, right? I think that would be the natural case. I'd, I'd like to stay positive. I'm sure we'll, we can't avoid the dark, dark uh, vortex, but. I want to understand kind of your viewpoint of where generative AI, AI in general might fit. And maybe we can get into some use cases as well, but where it might fit into a security program. Um, Marco and I do a lot of creative things and a lot of thought 
thought-provoking and thought-generating content type, type activities, and we leverage it to kind of boost our thinking process. So not as a take it what you can from it and use it as it is, but perhaps a way to think differently and redefine how you approach your programs. So I don't know who wants to start, maybe Leah, do you want to? Sure, well, yeah. I'm going to say um, step one, use it and add it into security training and awareness. Um, I think it's very important to have the understanding of what the potential is as well as what the risks are and to make sure that that's baked in from the beginning because you know it's, there's still human risk and we can prevent a lot of that but we need to have the proper you know training controls policy and I think also just looking over all the governance and frameworks um, and compliance behind all of it so kind of taking a very big step back to look at all of that first in place before then adopting and bringing in the technology. Now, is it too late though? <laughs> is, is, it, is it being used, do you think? It, it is being used, and actually one thing, like looking at the positive side, is policy itself. Where right? you think about policy, who wants to write a policy? And sometimes I joke that policies are a little bit like fruitcakes. You know, it's like somebody had one and it just keeps getting passed around and edited and changed and fit to that. So policies, because generative AI is you know, predictive, right? They, then they've got a whole lot of policies to reason over. So brainstorming with it on your policy can actually, if you say, I want an acceptable use policy for you know this size company, you'll find it can come up with a pretty good first pass. So instead of having to go and find templates, you can use that. I'm not saying take it, you know, point blank from what it wrote, but it's certainly a great way to get a leg up on some of that policy work rather than just rewriting templates. Davi, what do you think? Because before we started recording, we talked about uh, you, you had an experience or a conversation with somebody saying, I don't want it being used. Now, this is outside of security, this, this conversation, but do you think we're in a position where we should say, don't use it? Um, or can right. we can Specifically, we I had a professor say, how do I get my you know, kids to stop turning in papers with ChatGPT, doing all the work for them, how do I detect them and punish them? And I am trying to encourage people to not think in terms of punishment. Mm. In fact, I'll stretch your metaphor a little bit. Okay, I think please. in darkness we see light. And so darkness is what we should embrace and, and run towards the darkness. It is the best thing we should be in because the overabundance of light creates blindness in a way that we can't see. Of course, total darkness is not good, but you can see better when you get into the dark side and it's a positive thing. So positive negative is a better framing for me, and if you take people using ChatGPT and give them a positive move forward, use ChatGPT, but know that it puts out garbage. <laughs> and when it puts out garbage, I can detect it, can you detect it? That encourages students to find ways to right. see signal in the mess and present what they've learned from the machine, which is like, it's like telling people don't read books because the books might be wrong. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's what the professors are thinking, like tool, bad, stop, I'll punish you, as opposed to positive reinforcement of, I want you to get to a higher understanding, show me that you do. Yeah, to think differently, and by all means, if, if any of you have thoughts on what somebody else says, jump in. But, um, so I, leading up to this conversation, I've had, I don't know how many podcasts I've done the last few weeks, and this has always come up. And there were some interesting points being made around kind of back to the think differently perspective. So we, analysts are sitting in front of screens, looking at loads of data, and it's, that data amount is just growing, right? Different sources and, different, and the volumes increase all the time. It's hard to really get a picture of things uh, in the current tool sets. And I'm wondering if, if there's a way to ask 
generative AI for what do you see in this data that I can't, or something along those lines. Or do you think we'll find things that existing tools might not be able to find? Do you want to start? <laughs> well, so if you look at unsupervised machine learning, mm -hmm. that would be a really good technology to apply to that use case because unsupervised machine learning does great with massive, massive amounts of data, which is what signal we have, security signal is massive amounts that companies are trying to look through, and it can find patterns. Are they useful patterns? Are they meaningful patterns? Well, that's up to the humans to figure out, but what it can absolutely do is find patterns that in that sea of data that we wouldn't be able to find. So in that case, it can help analysts find things that they might not see otherwise. I think we're probably going to have to get better at tuning so that we know we're seeing more of the useful patterns and not you know, the false negative, false positive problem, but unsupervised machine learning is really good for finding patterns. I mean, there's so many examples of how it fails. They're funny and they're also tragic. You take the example of a machine that was told, can you play a game where you win at flipping pancakes? And the you know, better you are, the fewer pancakes fall on the floor. And so it flipped the pancake into space. And it never came down. Nobody <laughs> ate. Everybody starved. And it, it showed us something we didn't think of, but it was useless, to your point. Like, we don't want that. Or more tragic examples, we said, can we find COVID? I think 200-some COVID analysis engines were assessed, and zero of them had any useful output. Mm -hmm. They told you things, for example, like you put in a bunch of images, it turns out the people who had COVID were a certain age group, and so it just came back identifying age group. It said, this is yeah. a child, this is a child, this is a child, or this is you know, an elderly. Yeah, and, and that's not, you don't want to know that. You don't want to know if the image is a child or an adult. You want to know if it, there's COVID here. So yeah, it can show you things, but getting it to show you what you're actually looking for is problematic, very problematic. And I would say my research is around breaking it. What we're working on is, like with the early servers, we didn't have firewalls, so all these ports are open. And you look at the server and you go, well, you can't run that on the internet, all the ports are open. How unsafe is that? <laughs> with AI Charging. and generative, what I'm seeing is, it's an in, as opposed to a confidentiality breach, it's an integrity breach, and we don't have an integrity firewall. And so what I'm thinking about most and working on now is how to build an integrity firewall so that when you get the results back, it's within the zone of information integrity, quality, mm -hmm. that would be useful because same for privacy. You only want things back that have preserved privacy when you're interacting with people. You don't want to breach their privacy in order to get the results you want. You don't want to breach the integrity in order to get results you want. So. Yeah, because Diana talked about creating policies perhaps with this, and to me that, and for the stuff we use it for, it's all about storytelling, right? Finding, finding a thread that runs through that somebody could also yeah. follow. And I'm wondering if there's a way to kind of extract a story that somebody can follow. This is a behavior, good or bad or irrelevant or whatever, but a way to communicate to the analyst, well, this is what seems to be happening. Yeah. Um, so not just a picture, but maybe a story. I think it can help with that. I mean, I still think that there's going to have to be work to be done to like contextualize, right? And, and obviously, it's kind of like a sim. It, it's only as good as the data it has access to, right? So it's all based on the quality of human input that the, what the outcome is. But I do think that if you can help translate some of, say, in the security operations role in your reporting, to have it become more of a business narrative and then combine that narrative in, in kind of um, help bring it back from security to business and how it enables business, and then make that a broader part of your enterprise, you know, cyber risk <laughs> program, and work together to bring that narrative, say, to leadership and the board. Then that's where I think it can help strengthen. What about risk? Analyzing risk, because I mean, people use it to write code. Um, we talked about writing policies. 
do you think it has the ability to kind of describe risk to us differently than we're able to do with current I mean, if, if risk, if we take the classic NIST definition mm. of likelihood times impact, I mean, it's possible because machine learning is good at probability. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that, and doing, and you know, the math to figure out probability is a very complex environment. So it's possible that it could help us to understand likelihood and impact a little bit more clearly, but it's going to have to have a lot of, of very specific custom data from the company itself, right? Because the likelihood of something happening in your environment is not something I'm going to find in a large language model that's been reasoning over all the interesting security stuff out in the, the internet. It's something that's going to have to be very specific to, like to your point, do I have firewalls or not? You know, which clouds am I in? How have I protected those servers and the access and those kinds? So if you could get that kind of really individual to the organization signal, and then if it could calculate likelihood and impact, then you'd have a better view into risk. But um, I have not seen that, I've heard tell of things working that way. I have not actually seen one in action that would work at a, at a you know, in even over a small size company. So, so, I don't know if you have, but. Well, I think it comes down to quality tests and people aren't comfortable with measuring quality. You know, like who is authorized to tell you that you're wrong or who is authorized to ban you is difficult, especially by culture and by country and by politics and so forth and by history. So we have to become comfortable with quality tests. Mm. It's more of a parrot, I would say, and people say that's unfair, so I'll acknowledge, but I think it's parroting. So if you ask can it write code, it's going to parrot the quality of code that we've seen before which may be very low, so it may write as low as other people have, and that may be acceptable, because we accepted it before, but it might be lower, and we have to recognize that and say, I'm sorry, you didn't come above this level. I test AI all the time, and it's, for me, very, very low. Like, below, I would rather hire a human, and I would get better quality if I train them, than if I try to work with a machine, I find that it's always below the quality. Now, quantity is a different story, speed, sleep, all that kind of stuff that gets in the way, personal <laughs> yeah. needs. So we might over-fetishize the ability to just grind a machine and not yeah. give humans their due for the reward for doing the work yeah. that we asked them. So I think quality is at the end of the day what we're looking for, and it's really just a bias machine. More than artificial intelligence, I find it's artificial bias machines. Mm -hmm. It's giving back to us maybe things we aren't comfortable acknowledging, but like our quality of code is low, and you say, mm -hmm. give me back some code, and it says, here's the quality of code that you've been generating for the last 30 years. Whoa, that's low, but I'll accept that from you. Whereas a human would be like, no, I'm sorry, you have to rise up and do better. So I think that's... And we do, you know, as, as if we don't know the answer to something, and a computer tells us an answer, and it sounds, I mean, a lot of these chat bots are, you know, they, they're pretty mm -hmm. confident, you know? Like, right. they, don't, yeah. they don't waver about like, well, maybe it's like, Here's the answer. So here's this answer that, if you don't know if it's right or wrong, and then it's wrong, and is there an impact? Like you put in a, a, a paper to a teacher that says no, or, and we don't, I don't think people have thought about all of the different ways that this comes into play. So for example, I was trying to get chat, one of the chatbots to create a recipe. And, and I described what I wanted the recipe to do, but, it kept coming out with like this kind of weird amounts. And then I, I, I moved the ingredients and I, I flipped them. And then it came out with more of the ingredients that came late. And I realized it was looking at what's the probability that if I put the ingredient first, it was the, right? Because if you look at an ingredient list, it's always, so that's what it had done. It had assumed that how I'd ordered the ingredients was the amount that should be put in and created something out of that. 
And I had to play with it a few times. Like if I had gone out and tried to make any of those, I mean, who knows what I would have ended up with because it was, it made an assumption on where the ingredient was in the list. It's that kind of thing that when we're talking about very complex security topics that I'm not sure that if we're not thinking about, we're going to catch because um, we don't, if we don't know what the right answer is, how do we know if it gave us the wrong one? Yeah, kind of along those lines with the accuracy, right? And I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of thought out there that this will replace people and jobs. I actually think the total opposite, opposite, because I think more data jobs, local data jobs, will actually become available because you have to then look at data accuracy, you know, partitioning, segmenting, all of that. And I mean, I just think about, for example, if you use Waze or anything for GPS, right, when you're navigating, well, in 10 years of living somewhere, what if it changes significantly, then that won't always have the latest data, right? So how, you know, we, we still have a ways to go to just ensure that it's not a deep fake or something else. Excellent points. I mean, you really hit it on the head when you think, if I hire somebody, I need to know what I'm asking them to do, because if I don't, it's very hard to manage the output of their work. And they'll be like, this, the job's done. You'll be like, I don't know if that's good or not. But if you know you've done it yourself and you say, do this job, you can measure it. That's back to the quality yeah. perfect point. And to your yeah. point, there's so many jobs that are being created by the need to measure quality. So you have to become the expert in cabinet making to measure the cabinets being mm -hmm. made for you. It means a bunch of cabinet makers can work for you. Yeah. And it's like all kinds of weird opportunities are going to come out of this. I think it's that's the bright side, right? Yeah. If you want to talk the about bright side. Yeah. <laughs> but I again, I say you run towards the dark side. You definitely yeah. embrace darkness as the place you want to live in because that's how you see the light. You see the signal in that space. As humans, that's what we're good at, and we should embrace that. So what other, in, in a positive light as best we can, what other considerations might we make as security leaders when we want to embrace this? Um, we talked about quality, we talked about um, perhaps having others check the work uh, for, for integrity of what's coming out of it. But how, I mean, because let's face it, speed is important, right? And having the ability to generate a lot of stuff, perhaps, is another, but that may, might overwhelm us or might send us down a rabbit hole that, that takes us somewhere we don't, don't really want to go. So are there other considerations we should think about as we do embrace this stuff? I think the skill sets that you have in your team, um, because I do think critical thinking will actually become a bigger necessity as we look at going in this direction with the adoption. Um, and I think that's a big piece of it and just Again, how do you prepare um, everyone, not just your security team, but everyone at the company, right? Mm -hmm. And is there going to be then uses where um, you need to limit that, um, or it's certain cases for you know, certain uses for different groups? But I think there's, I mean, I, I guess I worry about some of that to some degree, but I think it can also enhance our critical thinking and add to um, overall the metrics that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, I would say assessment and very specifically threat modeling before you start bringing too many of these tools into the organization. Understand how they're going to be used, what the impacts of them being incorrect or misused, if the data is poisoned or if it gets too biased. Get all of that together. Understand what can go wrong, what needs to be done to make it go right and perform a threat model on the adoption of these tools before you, especially a big major tool like a, a chat GPT. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one where, yes, we don't want to slow down innovation and be the no people, but 
do the, you don't, people can start using it while you're doing the threat model at the company. It still needs to be done. And I actually do know, I'm kind of happy a number of companies I, I do know about, they actually did ask their security teams to take a look at ChatGPT and just get sort of 360 degrees of what could go wrong if we're using it, if an attacker's using it, if a competitor's using it, what's all the, um, so I think, yeah, that's just the power of, the, of risk assessment and threat modeling here. Yeah, I mean, two things for me. One, I think we overemphasize the performance aspects of security such that we want to execute quickly. But what has to come before that is a lot of slow, deliberate, careful learning. And machines that say that they're certainty machines often have very bad basis for certainty. So you take them in like, like a junior SOC analyst would come in and say, I absolutely know this is true. You'd say, well, hold on. Let me look at some other things, talk to some people and find out for sure. And that overemphasis on the certainty machines is the same route. So we need to have a slow down, take a minute. Somebody who's done it for a long time, has accumulated knowledge. Let's have them, after all that slow time, decide whether we need to act immediately right now or not. So the fast performance-based stuff needs to come with a cost, which a lot of people want to get rid of, but we actually do need to take it into account. And the second thing is I feel like threat modeling for AI, it goes back to Frankenstein. And we've known since the 1800s that utopia <laughs> is fake, <laughs> that an overzealous public adopting this machine turns out with tragic consequences. So if you watch Frankenstein over and over again, or even the 1960s, Blade Runner, you know, which came out in 1968. The 80s. I like young yeah. Frankenstein. But it comes from a book in 1968. All right, and but so it was Blade a, Runner was 1980. And now I think it's Megan, the movie, is like, <laughs> it's like a newer version of Frankenstein. It. Yeah. Yeah. So they can keep making the movies, but go back to 1968, yeah. because the sentiment in 1967 and 8 and 70 was, this stuff, Eliza, chat GPT right. is based on the chatbots. They wrote, the people that created Eliza, uh, or the person really, wrote, this is terrible, don't do this, it's going to end poorly. So our threat modeling needs to go back in time and say, hey, Frankenstein was like a real concept that hasn't changed. Utopia is a place you don't ever want to end up. It's a horrible, fictitious place. You're led towards a place that never arrives. So I think people need to think about threat modeling on security teams in that context of human history more than what's the worst that can happen. There are all these books and movies that already tell you. <laughs> yeah, because I, when I think about it, I think that, that there's, well, in order for it to be meaningful and, and useful, uh, it needs a lot of data, right? So the question that always comes to my mind is, well, what data, where is that data from? Where is it going to? How broadly is it shared? And who do we trust? with that information? Do we trust a non-security tool through an API that everybody's plugging, in, plugging away at? Or do we trust a company that's using that with maybe some barriers to, to protect the company's security information from reaching a broader set of people? Or is it all on-prem? Uh, and we limit it to our own data and we accept that that's what it is? Uh, is there are there more things we need to think about there, and is there a good way to start with that? Do we just go full bore, chat GPT, throw all our security data up on open.ai, or, or is there some compromise or step that we can take? Well, I think we've missed the boat. On data lakes are a good example of how we over-centralized yeah. too quickly into this idea. You, I remember the saying used to be, even from the CIA, like you can't connect the dots you don't have, so you better get as many dots as possible, and somehow dots have value, so the more the better. And that was completely wrong. What you need is quality. When you go into a library, if you have a small collection of really good books, you're way better off than having every book that's been ever been published. <laughs> and I laugh when people say it's a prediction machine, but it's only amassed everything up to 2021, 20, 
and I say, okay, what happened in 2022? It can't predict what we know happened. So that's not a good prediction machine. And the idea that you would amass all the information in the world is cost prohibitive. In fact, you would have to amass more information than we've even generated yet to get to a level of accuracy that we would expect out of the machine. So that's, it's just not the way to go. It's just big data as a whole has completely been blown up as a workable foundation. People are using it and they will sell it to you, but the inverse is actually true. We need to get the higher quality data that is distributed. In other words, if I can manage my information, I can probably do it better than anyone else managing my information. Even if I hire a specialist who manages my information, they're still not going to probably be as good as me. So why not let people in a distributed fashion have control over their own data? and then allow the analysis to come to me and look at me and talk to me about my data instead of me pushing it out into these giant data repositories. So like if I give consent, it's gone and I don't know where I've consented to what and how. It's like this big graveyard of past consents. That's just not, it's the, what, the way AI is modeled right now on massive amounts of data is unsustainable, it's economically unviable, it's like bad for the environment. So we need to completely blow up the model and shift it to personal data stores where intelligence is accumulated from right. the individuals who have integrity. Yeah, I mean, the, the data lake point is very well taken in terms of privacy, because we are, we're, we're hungry, data fuel, right? We got to train these models. And there's a lot of, well, the, the information was de-anonymized and nobody's going to be able to you know, recreate it. And model inference is exactly that attack. And it's been proven by researchers a number of times that you, there was one that was with health data and with just like somebody's zip code and last name, I think they could, they could say what surgery that person had on a particular date. That was supposed to be, it was a surprise, right? It was like, that was supposed to be surprise. hidden. So until we can really feel very confident that we've got privacy in the data, that's going to matter quite a lot. Um, the other thing with the data is just, is it poisoned? Is it biased in a certain way? If I was an attacker, I would want to poison your data so that my attack looks completely normal and you wouldn't flag on it. That's just one example. But you know, there's a lot of different ways and attacks of, of data poisoning. But the quality of the data, as you've been talking about, is really, it's so, it's so critical. Um, and also, again, just making sure that we can protect privacy, because there's yeah. a lot of data that's being collected right now. Yeah, well, I mean, data protection is, is about as vast as like cybersecurity, right? So right. I would then say, based on both of what they just <laughs> mentioned, that take accountability in the company and figure out where's the ownership at, right? Is that still, is that figured out yet? Because in a lot of cases, it's not. And who's going to do what and make that a starting point? So I want to speak to both the analysts and leaders um, as, we, as we begin to wrap here. So if you're an analyst watching this, um, what would you want to hear from us? Um, how, to, how to safely embrace it? Um, what kind of conversation would you have with your leader to say, this is what I hope to do and, and here's what I need to do to do it? Um, I don't know, how, how, would, how would that conversation go for the analyst? I mean, I think if you're talking about a SOC analyst, mm -hmm. what they want, or you know, a hunter perhaps, they yeah. want to understand if I've got a pile of IOAs or IOCs, you know, indicators of compromise, indicators of attack, how do I go and, and search through the organization to see this was actually an attack, it was actually a significant problem. How do I understand what this IOA might mean? What are the, the you know, artifacts connected to this IOC? And that's the kind of thing you could get from some of these tools that are being very focused around cybersecurity SOC assistant, basically. Right? So for IBM and Microsoft to come out with two different versions, but there are other companies who are talking about it. Um, 
So I think you know, asking about, is this something that we think that we can adopt and will it help me? And just ask to try it. You know, I'm, these companies want you to try it. So, you know, can we try it? Can we see if this is something? So talk to your leaders about a very specific use case that would help you do your job and then give them some ideas about which ones that you'd want to look at and how you'd want to test it so that they would know, look, if we're going to open this project, it's not going to go on forever. You're going to you know, open it and close it in four weeks. We're going to know, are we going to now adopt this as a tool? Of course, after the threat modeling, because <laughs> you want to know. Well, the threat model would probably be part of, as they were right. assessing, they'd first want to know, does it work? And then they'd have right. to do some threat yeah. modeling. Yeah. Simulations. Yeah. Yeah. A lot I mean, of simulations. Ask it questions you already know the answer to. That's how you build your trust. Mm -hmm. right. And so test it on things that you already can confirm or deny yes. without wondering whether it's right or not. And then that should be fun. Just like if you like writing scripts, then you'll love asking it questions because it's automating the answers for you. And then also use it to reduce you know, the time it takes to do things. I mean, think of it as a time-saving measure, but that doesn't mean it will be right. So after it saves you a bunch of time, have a way to go and verify. Yeah. If you don't know the answer, have other means of verifying the answers and treat it as a time saver in getting you to a place where you can verify what it thinks to be true. That's and if those manual checks, figure out how you can automate those manual checks. <laughs> Well, it's like reading a book. I mean, you go to yeah. the library, you pick out a book, it teaches you about a subject you didn't know, it saved you a ton of time. You didn't yeah. have to do all the primary research, but that doesn't mean the book is right or that it didn't right. lie to you about the primary research. So treat it like a system of learning that you have to validate and check, but it probably saved you a bunch of time. Mm -hmm. So how about for the, the leadership team now, security leaders, CISOs and their managers, how should they approach this. So they have the team to manage, of course, that is probably already playing um, many times unknown to, to the leader, to the manager. And then they have the their leadership team, their peers, that are probably hearing about this. And so taking aside the, the risk to the company, but how can they use it for security programs? What would we tell them? How is it, do we look at privacy? Do we look at compliance? Do we look at policies? Do we break down response versus hunting? Are there other ways to kind of approach a program to use this in a way that that can find a place for it where there might be some impact, but not just blasting it across the whole whole thing? Is there some prioritization and planning that we could advise them on? Yeah, so I, I think that you know, you've got your team right They're out trying to figure out if it's going to help the analysts already. You might be having them, you might have your uh, testing team be doing some scripting and seeing if it's actually going to find O days or things like that. Um, and when you talk to your leadership team, you want to prepare them for how it may be able to help the company advance. And also, I would have a, a really serious conversation with them about privacy because although I know you said the, not just the risk to the company, but there is a risk to the company that if you've got your leadership team having these long, detailed conversations, and people kind of forget themselves when they're you know, typing away to chat GPT sometimes, um, if you're saying, well, you know, we're about to merge with this other company, and I'm trying to think about a press release or an email to send to my employees, because I have to lay off 40% of the company or something like that. I mean, who else is, is hearing that? Who owns that chatbot? Who's, who's seeing that? Is this truly a private conversation, or if you just, so understanding, too, about um, surveillance and who may be watching. We know that search engines 
anonymize our searches, but then create you know, information and data around who's searching for what, and they target us based on what we're searching. Um, so what are the folks that they're supplying the, the chatbots looking at and extracting? Yeah, I guess along those lines is the access is a big one, but have this, the awareness and training for everybody. Very, very important to bake that yeah. in from the beginning into that program. I think the new saying is loose ships sink ships. Uh, <laughs> if you want something convenient to throw around. But it really does come back to education the way security started. So we used to say everybody has responsibility for security. That wasn't enough. It's true, you definitely have to educate everyone about privacy. Who are you talking to in restaurants, on the train, which chat engine are you talking to? It's all yeah. the same stuff. Yeah. So you need that. But you also need a head to sort of bring it together. Like who's feeding the cat is a phrase people sometimes say to me. You got to figure out who at the end of the day is going to make the decision on what's safe. You can't just leave it up to everybody in the company. Mm. Business leaders should understand this. They're leaders of the company. And I think too often you have, you know, you should figure out what's right and wrong isn't enough. You should train people on ethics. Mm. The same way we used to treat you know, security as a thing you get trained on formally, what's missing is leaders need to know they need to train ethics into software development in order to handle the questions we're dealing with today. And we'll get better quality code if we train people on security like bug fixes and remediation, end of life, all that stuff. We'll get better relationships with intelligence, artificial intelligence, if we train on ethics. But you also have some, you need somebody to be in charge of the ethical decisions. And I think that's unfamiliar or uncomfortable. I mean, Microsoft fired, basically, or let go, if you will, their ethics team, when they really invested, when they doubled into OpenAI, they were like, we're going to go all in on this, and then they got rid of all the ethics team. And that, to me, was like, you know how you got the 2001 Microsoft memo? That's how you get the 2001 Microsoft memo. When they finally acknowledged the slammer worm, the SQL problems, how bad it was at Microsoft. You got to start early, and you got to have people in charge, and you got to train everybody. I like that ethics point, and I'm wondering, is there anything else we need to add there? Because as you were talking about how we, how we use this as leaders, is there a way to leverage ChatGPT, for example, to help us understand <laughs> where the ethical lines are for our company. So I don't know if there's a safe way to do that, because that might be a fun learning experience for people, right? If we could use it to say, I want to know, but what lines might I cross if I share this type of information? And I don't know if that might, to I mean, your point, help, help educate and, and train at the same time while using because you said don't you don't want to talk to strangers, right? But right, it is a stranger. It is a stranger. That's right. Mm -hmm. right. So we have to begin to be comfortable with it. And I think I don't know, like me personally, if we start with the ethics part of it first, that could produce some interesting things. I, I mean, I think it's just we're going to have to figure out how to delineate between the machine and the human, mm -hmm. right? And that in and of itself could be challenging. The more further we get ahead of that, but yeah, that's the biggest one. And then. I mean, ethics, I think, needs to be a big part of it. I mean, there are ethicists who have been looking at data science and bias related to AI and ML. Don't let those, those teams go. Keep those teams, engage those yeah. teams. And yeah, you could chat GPT and say, what do you think ethically in a brainstorming way right. to get your ideas flowing, but ultimately it would be your ethics team that really has to come out and say, look, these are our this is what's important, this is what we need to do, or just give it additional guidance. I mean, again, history is the guide. Microsoft released Windows NT 3.5 and got rid of their security folks. 
and then it was a disaster, and it's like they just announced they're going to go all in on this chat stuff. I, we just found out, for example, that Teams is sending all of your conversations into an AI engine, and maybe without even your consent, so that it can improve your experience. Do you want everything you're saying being listened to by an artificial intelligence engine that who knows who has access to and what it's doing with that information? To your point about your leaking, I mean, typically in leak terminology in vernacular, you would erase, how do you reset? How do you, and a database that has leakage has to be reset to per, before it has the leak. So how do you reset the AI is becoming yeah. the problem for leaders and training and teams. I like the um, point you made about using it as a collaborative tool because if you can use that within leadership um, for it, it, figuring out, one, just having the understanding, how does it permeate throughout the company, the understanding um, with all the different levels um, of leadership and all the different you know, orgs within leadership, that's important, right? They're all going to have to, to some degree, come to some um, realizations, but under, common understanding, common ground, and common path forward. Yeah, commonality is an excellent point yeah. because the moral yeah. foundation that we agree upon mm -hmm. is super useful in business and in uh, helping communicate across business units. And that's actually what these machines do really well is they give you sort of a baseline of what people have said before. Right. So you can say, I'd like to say this to other people. How do most people say these things? Mm -hmm. You don't have yeah. to invent it and be super creative and it tells you, well, this is what everybody would say. So it's, in that sense, it can help you address the ethical issues by giving you a sense at least of how everyone has done it before. But beware that there's bias in there that you don't want to repeat. Right. So yeah. don't always take it at face value. It's not not necessarily everything somebody said before is still appropriate to say. Exactly. <laughs> don't don't repeat the, the comments that were made that got the company in the lawsuit. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Lessons learned. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're pretty much uh, coming up on time here. So I don't know if anybody has any final thoughts. Something we we didn't touch on. I mean, we didn't go down the how to protect the, dark, the complete dark path, which I'm, I'm grateful for. <laughs> um, I think the takeaways for me, and if, if you have something to add, but I think lead with ethics. And I, I don't know, ethics are different for different peoples and different people in different parts of the world. So I think having, having an understanding of what that means, not just for yourself and your team and the company, but your customers perhaps as well. Um, you have to consider that. I think, to your point, both off camera and on, um, this is not something we should try to shut down, but we should embrace, right? And perhaps help let it help us embrace it in a collaborative way. And uh, yeah, I think there. I mean, the sky's the limit on in terms of activities and tasks and outcomes that that can come from it, as long as we think differently about how we how we use it. So. Yep. Be, prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared. Responsibly. Yes. Responsibly. You can only see the stars if you're in the darkness. I say embrace it. I love it. All love of us it. are in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. And, and the folks watching us now are seeing the stars in this darkness. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for all of you watching. And uh, thanks to our, our panel of amazing people. And hopefully you're thinking a little different, at least thinking about how generative AI can, can fit into your program, your analysts, and, and we didn't talk about communicating to executive leadership and the board, but there's a place if you think about how you're going to use it, and don't overstep the bounds as you, as you begin that journey. So 
Thanks, everybody. Stay tuned for more episodes here from Broadcast Alley, all coming to you from ITSB Magazine Podcast Network here in San Francisco, Moscone West. If you're in the area, come by, stop, say hi, and uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you.